Welcome to another episode of Culinary School Stories, the weekly podcast that is dedicated to sharing the stories of people around the globe whose lives have been influenced, impacted, touched, and or enriched, for good or for bad, from their culinary school experience. Hi, my name is Colin Roach and I'm your host. Thanks for joining us today. You are an important part of this show where we ask the question, what's your culinary school story? So now, without any further delay, let's meet today's guest. Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Culinary School Stories uh, podcast, which is a proud member of the Food Media Network. My guest today is a graduate and a former chef instructor from Johnson & Wales University's Providence, Rhode Island campus. And she has an awesome culinary school story that you're going to share with all of us. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to introduce you to Chef Linda Kender. Linda, welcome to the show and thanks for joining us today. Hi, Colin. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great. It's so fun. I haven't seen you in a long time. I know we have, uh, you know, share history from the school and stuff. So I'm excited to hear what you have to say as well. But let's start right out by, I want to ask you, how did you get into cooking and why did you go to culinary school? You know, I was thinking about that. Uh, I remember when I was in high school, all the time growing up, actually, uh, my mother always cooked, my grandma always cooked, and I always cooked. And we grew up, my sister, brother, and I grew up in Sutton, Massachusetts. Not a lot to do back there. Back, back then, it was the 70s. And um, we cooked all the time. And I remember very clearly, I was standing in the kitchen. I had just finished making a, a, a cake. And always have been a little OCD as far as things are concerned. <laughs> We're displaying things later on in my career. And I remember decorating the top of this cake very strategically with blueberries, all the same size and all pointed in the same direction. And I picked it up and I said, I should be a chef. And the rest is history. Wow. The next thing I know, my father, because I really had no direction, uh, you know, a lot of kids when you're in high school, especially you're talking like the 70s now, early 70s, what do you do? You, you go to work at the post office. So you get, you know, you sign on with some, some company and you stay there for 40 years and then you retire. Mm -hmm. But my dad had read about Johnson and Wales and it had just, just really just started. It was 1973 that it, it started its first culinary program. And he said, we're going to take a ride. And I said, and where are we taking, you know, where are we are? Providence, Rhode Island. Where the heck is Providence, Rhode Island? <laughs> it's less than an hour down the road. And I walked in to the College of Culinary Arts. It wasn't a college. It was a school. We shared this building with, I, I think it was like a recruitment induction center for the services. And we, we had half of it. And they had half of it that we weren't, we couldn't go near. And I remember walking in and the first person I met was Franz Lemoyne. Franz Lemoyne was the first director of the culinary school. And he took us around. He, he took us around. I was flabbergasted. I was, I, 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 it was like I was meant to be there. The kitchens and the, the equipment and the accents and everything, I'm, I'm just like, oh, boy, Doug, please, Dad, please, please, please. And he made me a deal. He said, I will pay for your first year. And if you're interested, you'll figure out how to pay for the second. Wow. And that's kind of like how I was introduced to Johnson & Wales the very first time. Great. So it was a pretty small, I'm imagining, then, not like it is today. Very, very small. It, how, how many kitchens do you, do you remember? And Chefs. Oh, there weren't, there weren't but a, a dozen or so, if that. I'm trying to remember. I know that there were. They had a couple of dining rooms. Um, there was a garde-manger kitchen. Um, there was a storage room, storeroom, which was little tiny, 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 and it was just. It was in its infancy, and. 
I guess it falls into the category of if you build it, they will come. Mm. Because I saw it at September 1974 for the very first time. And the very last time I saw it was the day after Memorial Day, 2020. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So it, was that in that, was that, that an armory building? Was that the original building? It was, it was more like, an, I think it was more like an induction center. Um, there was one, there was one area that eventually, it's still there. It's called South Hall. It's a dorm. But I believe it was barracks uh-huh. at one point. So I know that the culinary school had half of the building. The other half, we weren't allowed to go in, but we would peek and see what was going on back there and stuff like that. So um, it was it was very, very small. And I can't remember how many folks were in my class. I, I don't believe it was close to 200. I mean, around that time, I think the whole student population was probably 200. Um, I was one of maybe a dozen females. Out of the whole school. Maybe a dozen. Out of the whole school back then. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So what was it like that first day? You're excited. You already toured the campus. Your dad's paying one year. You're there. One year. You're, sh- you're showing up. You're going to get knife kits, I'm guessing, uniforms, and they're going to take us about first day. What's going through in your head and what are you seeing and walk us through it? The first first day, the first experience down there um, when my parents dropped me off was a little bit in, intimidating because, I, like I said, I grew up in Sutton, Massachusetts. There was no one in Sutton, Massachusetts who didn't look like me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We weren't a very diverse community. Um, I went to high school. I graduated with 45 or 50 students. I, I got to Waybosset Street in Providence, and we lived in a place called Crown Hall. And seven or eight floors and people of, of all color and creed and everything and all of this. And um, being in a room with, with someone you don't know and all the all the things that you try to look at the freshman that you see now and say, it's going to be okay. You just, you know, take a breath. It's going to be okay. But the first day I remember standing in line and standing in line, standing in line for toolkits and uniforms. And there, there weren't really books so much as they were, they were like pamphlets that were put together. Um, and when we started, we started right off the bat. The, the uniforms went on. The bus picked us up and brought us down to the to the culinary school. I don't remember first classes. I don't remember a lot of things other than I was very enthusiastic. I was very much looking forward to it. I had already met a lot of people. As a matter of fact, one of the very first persons people that I met was Paul McVetty. Hmm. He eventually turned out, as you know, to be one of the deans over at the, the university. Um, what was he when you met him? What was this? Was he? He was a fellow classmate. Oh, okay. Uh, he graduated the same year I did, hmm. along with a lot of others, you know, Jerry Fernandez and a lot of, a lot of folks that really have made, you know, wonderful careers for them. Great. And so you don't remember your first class, but were you, were you good? Did you have experience besides the cake with the blueberries on it? Were you in there feeling out of your element or in your element? How was that? Every, everybody who was over the age of 16 in Sutton, Massachusetts at that time had a job, got a job at Pleasant Valley Country Club. That was the place to go, the place to be. And I was no different. I got a job as the pantry girl. And weekends, I would work there and then, you know, obviously go to high school and, and stuff like that. But I worked in the kitchen prior to. And uh, this will take you back, Colin. I remember, <laughs> you know, the kids talk about all this molecular gastronomy and all of this sort of stuff. <laughs> or oh, molecular gastronomy, pardon me. But... Um, I remember making things like cranberry shrubs and <laughs> lettuce wedges with the, the pimento and the Thousand Island dressing on it. Okay. 
Pro Cups from out of a jar with the maraschino cherry. Woo-hoo, that was the big thing. <laughs> Maybe a little coconut on top. Woo. Yeah, a little, little green coconut to make it look nice, nice. You know, that was like the extent of it back then. But getting back to the university, Johnson Wales, at that point, one of the things that I really enjoyed about it is they had uh, what they call PKA and PKB. And you'd spend one day in a lecture hall with the chef preparing the entire menu. And then the next day you'd go into the lab and you would prepare what was ever, whatever was on your list of things you prepare for that day. So I remember watch, watching Chef Larkin. I, I'm trying to think of some of the names. I'm like, Chef Larkin, I remember him, PKA and PKB doing demonstrations and then the next day going in and teaching and you take your tedious notes and all the different things and and you go in and and you just have have a hell of a time for yourself, you know. I remember one of my favorite classes, uh, of course, was God Marget, and that was with Chef Flattery. And that was back in the days where <laughs> if you didn't learn your recipes, you're out. That's it. And everybody feared this man, feared him, because it's out of the realm of everybody's area of expertise. God Monger, of course. Um, God Monger doesn't mean just making salads and fruit cups. Now you're talking galantines and valentines and pâtés and stuff that your average 18, 19-year-old kid has no idea what this is all about. And now you're standing there. And he used to line us up like soldiers in a row. And he would say, okay, now start to recite the recipe for chicken galantine. You go. What's the first three ingredients? You go. What's the next three ingredients? And everybody would be like shaking in their, shaking in their boots, you know. <laughs> oh, am I going to get this pot? Am I going to get this pot? What are you going to ask me? But we learned it. If you didn't know it, you were gone. He just said, go find out. You were gone. Go, that was it. Go, See you go later study it and come back when you knew it. Or? Yep. Yep. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, I, I guess it helped people remember it, I guess, if, by, by fear. Yeah, it, it, learning by intimidation. <laughs> uh, how was the equipment back then? I mean, it's changed so much. I mean, immersion circulators, of course, all these type of things, RoboCoops. What was it back then? Uh, buffalo choppers and- Buffalo choppers. Um, slicers, equipment that unless you had had any experience in a kitchen somewhere, you wouldn't, I mean, who's got a buffalo chopper at their house? Right. You, you know what I mean? So you'd go and and there was also one area where, and I'm trying to remember if this was um, equipment ID class or something like that, where you would go and you'd spend the time and they would show you all right, this is a buffalo chopper. This is how you break it down. This is how you clean it. This is how you put it back together again. This is, you know, the version of a, a blender or a robo-coup and, and those types of things. The equipment was primitive, but for the for the time, it wasn't, mm-hmm. yeah, it was, you know, it was modern. <laughs> looking at, back at it now, it would be it'd go into the culinary <laughs> museum, you know, <laughs> be on display. <laughs> now, back then, you actually had to, your labs, if I'm correct, were also feeding actual students. Yes. Right. It's like so you yep. had to you had to meet that at that time. Like breakfast, I'm sure, was like five AM or something like that. Right. Yes. So it's changed your schedule was not a set schedule like seven to one. It was whatever the class needed you at. Correct. Wow. Correct. So, uh, so there was probably people that were late or in the morning ones and late in the morning. Um we were really all over the place. We had a pantry class. Um, we had, you know, classical French classes. They, they still taught the classics, which was always one of my favorite things, you know, when it comes to, to cooking or, or you like eating because you can't go wrong with the yolks and butter, you know, yeah. um, nothing like the taste of a real hollandaise sauce compared to Nors that you, you know, sprinkle a little milk in. Um, so those were always my favorite. One of the things in, in, you know, I just it just came to me. I remember sitting in the dining room, and uh, when they would run out of food, and they would often the kitchens would often run out of food. Um, 
that your table would be stuck with a chicken liver omelet. And I'll never forget that as long as I live, you know, the chicken liver omelets, which are just like, oh, my God, you know, <laughs> just, you know, who can eat that stuff, you know? Oh, sorry, the chef ran out of food. He'll make you a chicken liver omelet. I'm good. <laughs> you couldn't get a plain omelet or a cheese omelet? It had to have the chicken? kind of like the way it went. They wanted However to get rid of rolled. them? <laughs> they wanted to use them up? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So what advice would you give to someone today, knowing how it's changed and evolved culinary school, and they wanted to go, and they were going to say, I want to go to culinary school. What would you tell them? What kind of advice or recommendations or even someone just wanted to enter this industry, you know, and they're coming to you for like that, that first kind of advice or guidance on what they should expect or what they should know or what they should be, you know, prepared for? would tell them that the industry as we know it is about to change tremendously. I don't know how that change is going to take place, but you can always see it, you know, already with, you know, like the, the new delivery systems and the, the takeouts and the door dashes and, and those types of things. I would, I would tell my students, and, and I do, one of the things that I, I would ask them when we would meet for the very first time, what was the best advice anybody ever gave you? And they really had some very interesting things. So I thought, I'm thinking, okay, well, I have to share that with them as well. So what's the best advice I ever, I ever received? Well, the best advice I ever received, number one, was shut up and show me. Quite simply, yep, 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 yep. Well, you know, I, I know within five seconds whether you know what you're doing or not. Pick up that tool and jump, okay? Never say never. You can never say never. You can never come into a class like sanitation or menu planning and cost control and say, I'll never use this again in my life. Why am I doing this? And I explained to them because when I was coming up, and I didn't like menu planning and cost control, knowing that 30 years later or 35 years later that I'd be standing in front of you with, with like 80 eyeballs looking at me teaching this. <laughs> so you can never say never. You know, you have to keep an open mind. And the best, best advice that I would give any one of them is to find a mentor. Find a mentor. And it has to be a personal relationship. Um, someone can't assign you a mentor, you will find a mentor. I found my mentor in April 1979. I remember that clearly. Wow. And you know who that was, Colin? Uh, I could probably guess, but you go ahead. <laughs> Mocha. Mocha Nograd. Yep. I spent the next, I met him. April 1979, I was 23-ish when I met him, and I stayed with him up until the day he died. I spoke with him every morning, or when he finally retired and went on Meredith, I spoke with him several times a week. I went to Florida and visited with him. And even though I was in my 40s, 50s, 60s, I'm not so much 60, I pushing 60, um, he would still call me up and say, Linda, <laughs> give me the advice du jour. <laughs> now, you were, were you working at the college at the Johnson & Wales when he came there? Yes. I had, you know, I was very fortunate. And a lot of people don't realize this. They, they see me um, in my uniform teaching menu planning and cost control, sanitation, food safety, which I, I love. Um, but they don't know any of the history, which is why I was so excited about having this conversation with you. Because I've really had three, if not four, careers at the university. I graduated in 76. And I stayed on as a fellowship student. And taking that fellowship position 
really let them do whatever they wanted to with us. And what they wanted to do with us at the time was help them open up the commercial properties. So I was sent to the Rhode Island Inn, which is the first commercial property that Dunton Wales had purchased. And it would eventually become the first practicum site. So they bought it when it was oh, it was just going out of business and, and they still had all these banquets booked and we were trying to hold up our end of the bargain. So we were following through with um, the weddings and the brunches and all of this sort of stuff. So I took a job there as the pantry girl um, because back in the 70s, the only female chef that was poking around was Giles, you know. And that was one of the first things that Franz Lemoyne said to me when, when we went to tour the, the facility the first time. You're more than welcome to come to school here, but there's no such thing as a woman chef. Wow. I'm like, really? Hmm. Mm. So I was the pantry girl, and I would take care of the brunches. And I told you, you know, that whole OCD thing came into play because the God Manger was something that I was fascinated by. And I, I just had a knack for it. And the guys didn't want to do it anyway. Because that, let the let the girl, let the redheaded girl, you know. <laughs> so um, the first time I saw Moshe, I was standing in the pantry. And where, me, where my pantry area was, I looked directly down the stairs. And all of a sudden, this man comes running up the stairs. And I'm like, who is this? And he starts opening the regions and checking in the low boys and looking in the, the walk-in boxes. And he's walking around, checking everybody out. And he never says a word. And he goes back downstairs. And I'm thinking, what happened? What just happened? What is that? <laughs> the next thing you know, we get introduced to him. He's the new food and beverage manager at the Rhode Island Inn. And um, I... We all took bets at that point because I knew I was eventually going back to the College of Culinary Arts, back to the culinary school, because I, I was scheduled to teach a pantry. And uh, I didn't think anything about it, but we used to take bets as to how long the chefs would last because the place was just a ridiculously run nightmare. It was, it was a nightmare. And I remember hard, hard cooking a case of eggs for some for, for brunch or, or something like that. And I overcooked every single one of them. We start cracking them open and they're all green. And I'm like, oh, brother, you know. And then Moshe, who was standing there at that point, I said, Why, what makes them turn green? He said that to you or you said it? Oh, no, I said that to him. Oh, okay. and, he went, and he went back downstairs. And he came back upstairs and he had a book. And he took the book and he started reading it from back to front. And it was all in Hebrew. And he started reading me about, you know, the, the combination of sulfur and the, the iron and all of that sort of jazz. And I was so impressed. I was so impressed. And he would teach me things. And it got to the point where. You could feel, you could feel that bond starting, mm -hmm. and when it came time for me to go back to the to the college to the culinary school, I I begged him not to let me go. I said, please, I want, please, I I can, I, I want to stay with you, please, and I did. And every morning, and I remember this as clear as bell. Every morning, five o'clock in the morning, I try to beat him in. If I, you know, if he'd say six o'clock, I'd come in at quarter of six, he'd already be there. Oh, I'll get him. You know, five o'clock I'm in, he's already there with coffee waiting for me. And those hours that he and I spent together over a cup of coffee and going through menus and preparations and, and just stories, I will treasure for the rest of my life. Wow. That's awesome. So that's when he became your mentor was during the egg situation? Well, he became my mentor along along the line. He and I developed a very special bond because 
I, I, I've never been intimidated by anybody in my life, male or female, never. And he intimidated a lot of the others, the, mm -hmm. the, the men. He, was, he, he could be. You've met him. He can be oh, yeah. tough. And he and I never had that relationship. He, he never put me in a situation where I felt uncomfortable, where I was afraid of him or anything like that because I'd be the first one to, to say I don't understand I don't understand what you're talking about you know cantaloupe I want you to cut the cantaloupe like, like wolves teeth I'm like wolves teeth <laughs> what are you talking about and he was like wolves teeth wolves teeth and I said I don't I don't know what you're talking about. I haven't seen a wolf lately. <laughs> yeah, you know, not a lot of wolves running around here in Warwick. You know, but then he would show me how to do it and uh we just we just became you know? Yeah. Now that was one job. You said you had three or three careers there? So that was one uh, three careers that well the, the first the first one was out on the commercial properties. I started off at the Rhode Island Inn. I learned my trade. I spent years there. Moshe eventually, and I begged him, I begged him, I begged him, I begged him. Every time we would go through another chef, I begged him to let me take on the position. And he kept saying, you're not ready. You're not ready. You're not ready. And I'm like, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. What he didn't realize is that all the chefs that were leaving it was because of me, because I, I, you know, underhandedly would sabotage them. Oopsie, I'm sorry. Did I just shut off that stock pot? Oh, I'm, you know, oh, did I? Oh, I'm sorry. Did I actually shut that oven off? Oh, my God. Um, one of those types of things. And I was notorious. And the others who knew me knew what I was doing. And Moshe eventually gave me the chance to be the, the um, executive chef at the banquet hall there. And uh, he would come up to me out of a moment's notice for just for whatever reason and just slap me on the cheek and say, you know, you are my favorite. And that would be like, oh, no, you're going to make me cry. I don't want to cry in front of the boys. You know, like one of these things. So I did that and I, I was part of a team. You know, this is when I was introduced. I met Reggie Dow. And um, Billy Aldridge, God bless him, uh, a bunch of us. And the second property that the university had at that point was the Cranston Hilton. And that was a big, big banquet facility right on the water, right down the street from the, the culinary school. And I was brought on as the um, head chef in charge of banquet and catering at that facility. So I stayed there for a while. And then we eventually opened up the place in Seekonk. We had like this little, we were like this little SWAT scout mission group. Um, so I was out on the commercial properties for many, many years. And Moshe had already gone back to the College of Culinary Arts to be the dean. And he called me one day and asked me if I wanted to come to the culinary school to teach God more day. And I said, you know something? One of the classes I always wanted to teach is Godmore J. So I went back to the College of Culinary Arts and I taught Godmore J for, geez Louise, close to 15 years. Wow. Um, I was affectionately known as the Wicked Witch of Godmore J. <laughs> um, I loved teaching that class. That class. You're a student favorite, I guess, huh? Well, you know something? They either love me or they don't. There's no, other than a little bit of gray around here, there is no gray here. You know, <laughs> Black and white. It, black and white. It's, it's simple. It's linear, it, and, and it's very, very simple. So I taught Godmanger for about 15 years, close. And then it was time. You know, and, and, and that would be another piece of advice I would give any young student or any professional, because my career is, is done now. I would say when it's time, you'll know it and move on. 
you know, move on. So I was fortunate enough when it was time I, I was I was done teaching God Manger. I knew it was time for me to move on. And it just happened to coincide with when they needed faculty members to teach over in the academics. And Kevin Duffy was the director at the time. And he said to me, there's a, there's a couple positions opening up over in the academics. You, you interested? And I said, yeah, that might be kind of something different, you know? So I went over to the hack building and I interviewed with Paul McVetty, who was the dean at that time, and Susan Marshall, who was the department chair. And they couldn't wait to get their hands on me. They were like, when, are you, when can you start? When can you start? So I did get that position over there. You have to go through all of the stages and all the, the, the steps and the whole bit, even though you've been with the university for already about 30 years, you know. But that's okay. And I was intimidated by the teaching of menu planning and cost control. I knew how to do it. Moshe taught me all of that. I knew inventories and food costs and, and costing recipes, and I knew all of that. But it's different standing in front of a classroom. And the way it was set up at that point, and I, I refused to wear civilian clothes, I said, I'm a chef. And I'm teaching chefs. So I, I stayed in my uniform. And the September I started was the September 11th when they hit the trade towers. Ah. The, one of the first classes I was, I was in, because I would go in early morning and shadow Mike Mara, who was, who was teaching menu planning and cost control. And then I would teach. I would go into the classroom at 1 o'clock. Or the next day I would go into the classroom. And I remember, I remember standing in my bedroom, ironing my jacket, watching Imus in the morning, believe it or not. And I watched that first plane hit the tower. And I'm like, oh, my God, that poor, poor guy. Oh, my God, what had happened? What happened? What happened? And then the second one. And I, I said, oh, boy, here we go. I went into school. And as you can expect, the kids are like, now they don't want they don't want a chef now. They don't want a teacher now. Now what they want is someone to hug them and to hold them and to sit and talk with them and tell them it's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And that was my first experience in the academic classroom. Um, and then I went through and I, I, Taught menu planning and cost control. I uh, really got into it. I really, really enjoyed it. I also taught food safety and sanitation. Then Carl Guggenmas came on board as the dean, and he decided he was going to start this new position, food safety liaison. And he said, Linda, you interested in doing something like that? And I said, very much so. Very much so. So I taught, <laughs> I taught menu planning and cost control by day, and I was the food safety liaison and university inspector by afternoon. Wow. So I, I've had a whole bunch of different things, and I've been, I've been blessed because I could do all these different like mini careers in one great big career. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely different, the academic to the labs. And it's funny you mentioned a 9-11. I was working for Florida Culinary Institute in West Palm Beach, and I was teaching Garmage. So we were actually in there teaching it. And when the announcement came, and we had a TV in there that we used to watch, you know, uh, vegetable carving v at that time, VHF or 8-track. You know, we had the films that we could watch. So we actually put the TV on, and it was, it was devastating because I had uh, a – I think it was she was American Airlines flight attendant. So we would have said the time that was going to get a second degree. And so she was knew those those planes. She knew the people that were on it. So that was that was that was definitely tough. But um, you know, at least lab you're moving, you're keeping busy. But the academic classes, they they can be a, a whole different uh thing. And as you know, I teach food and beverage cost control too, so I I know what you're saying. <laughs> right. The difference between the pastry and the culinary students is phenomenal, isn't it? 
Yeah. Yeah. The pastry, they just get it. You know, <laughs> I don't know if it's the numbers and dealing with formulas, but, you know, they seem to get it where the culinary or maybe they didn't pay as much attention to the, you know, remedial math parts of it and stuff. Yeah. And they just, they just can't see past that. Or maybe they, they don't think it's that important. Yep. Well, they, they figure it out soon enough. <laughs> yeah, I always start day one, you know, this is the most important class because you'll be the best chef in the world and still go broke if you don't know how to make money. So <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Great. Um, so now you just talked about your career and you've just retired. When did you retire and how many years total did you have at Johnson & Wales? I had a total of 45. Great. I, I was the senior faculty university-wide. Wow, so out of all four campuses, you had been there the longest. All four campuses, all all the um, hospitality colleges and, and all of that, I've been there the longest. Wow. Um, I retired June 6th. I stayed through my contract, of course, which I would do anyway. Um, and the contract ended June 6th. And unfortunately, you know something, I was thinking about a couple of things, you know, was there anything that I regretted? Any, what do I, what did I regret during my 45 year tenure there? Um, the first thing that I, I, I regret a little late now, I guess, is not continuing my degree and getting, getting my doctorate. Um, I did get the master's degree in education and all of that. Um, but not getting my doctorate degree. But by the time I figured that out, it was, it wouldn't be worth it financially or, mm -hmm. you know, who wants to go into retirement in a couple of years with, 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 you know, tens of thousands of dollars of student debt doesn't make any sense. Um, that and what really broke my heart, Colin, was when I had to go in and clean up my office all alone. And there was nobody there, nobody in the building. Oh, because of the pandemic. Because of the pandemic. Me and the security guard who let me in. And he stayed and we, we talked back and forth for a little bit. And he said, when you leave, just leave the doors open and leave the keys on the desk. And call me and let me know so I can lock up. And that broke my heart. Yeah. I mean, that broke my heart. I wasn't able to go and give my friends you know a goodbye hug or a, or, or a handshake or a kiss or or anything i was in the office all by myself and i, I was just like boy this is this is killing me yeah. <laughs> it's just killing me. that's a lot of years and a lot of memories to box up on huh? yeah mm. yep but you know what you know what i did i've got books all over the place and, and as you do i'm sure and i have I had this great big, huge bookcase in my office. And I said, you know something? These are all books for teaching. I, what am I going to do with all these books? I don't have any place at home for them. So the second term, I had three classes, one pastry and two culinary arts. And I said to, to all, every one of them, you are the last groups that I will be teaching here at Johnson & Wales University. I said, I've got books. Do you want, you want books? After class, you follow me down to my office and you can take what you want. So I had, you know, it was like the Pied Piper. I had all these kids following me, <laughs> you know, book bags and everything else. I said, here they are. I said, you don't have to take them all at once. Look at them. There's something you want. I kept three. I kept the LaRousse. I kept the Food Lovers Companion. And I and I kept my my giant um, FDA model food code, and everything else I gave to my kids. They, they must have been joyful, huh? They must have been so happy. Oh, they were they were <laughs> thrilled. They were they were thrilled. Yeah. Absolutely thrilled. Especially knowing they're coming from you, you know. So they have a little bit of you know meaning besides just buying it off of uh, Barnes and Noble. Yeah, and they and every single one of them, believe it or not, every single one of them has a great big K on everyone like that. That right there, they all know where they came from. <laughs> time I'd get a book, I'd put a great big K on it. Like, now don't tell me that's, that's your book. Uh -uh. <laughs> that's mine. That's my book. So now that you're done, you know, you're retired, what do you think the future is for culinary school? What do you think the future is for the industry? The culinary school, I don't, I, I, I don't know. I watched 
a video on how they were going to set it up, you know, two students at a table with the plexiglass in the, the center and, you know, picnic tables out in the green space and arrows going this way, arrows going that way. Um, you know, something I, I don't know how it's going to work. I, I don't know what it's going to be like, but I do know for a fact that you can't teach students how to open clams or oysters by video. If they wanted to do that, you could watch the Food Network. You know, um, I think personally that our craft has always been hands-on, has to be hands-on. I'm heartbroken as to how many restaurants, it, just in this state, just in the small little state of Rhode Island, are going out of business. Um, will never open again. It, it, it's it's heartbreaking. What will happen with the school? I don't know. I, I can't even fathom how they're going to be able to, to teach like that. You know, limited capacity, limited crowds, limited numbers of students in classes. Um, it, it, it's going to be a, a diff it's going to be a difficult problem for someone to resolve. Um, how that that's going to take place. The future of culinary? Well, you know something, I think that's a whole different whole different set of of questions because there there's people out there. I don't know who they are, I don't know where they are. They could be at Johnson and Wales College of Culinary Arts right now, for all we know, that will come up with the innovation and the technology of the future that will bring all of this back together again how they're going to do it i don't know uh you know kitchen drones with you know teaching like that or videos like this or um taking the computers into the kitchens and showing well this is how you saute and and all of that sort of stuff um how the industry proceeds i i don't know but but that's what we do isn't it you know that's what we do maybe we could do Maybe we could do holograms. We could just come right into everyone's kitchen. Yeah. Don't know. <laughs> Look at that. Well, it's, well, it's also now just changed too, isn't it? The College of Food Innovation and Technology. Mm -hmm. So this would be a good project for the new college to kind of figure out what that technology, that innovation, how to save the industry. Yeah, and that's they're going to have their their work cut out for them. That's a fact. So could you talk about because uh, you were the uh, commercial chef you know you worked all the different commercial properties could you talk about the importance of gaining experience in the industry while you're in school or before you go to school it is so important one of the things that i always did even when i was teaching um every summer i would go out get a job at one of the local resorts local clubs um just to hone my skills, just to make sure that I was up with, with things. I would either take a job as an executive chef or a, a head god manger chef or something like that. Um, so I always, I always worked. Um, this explains why I'm so, so tired. I've been working since I was 12. <laughs> but um, it's, it's so important that they take summer jobs, that they go out and they don't just take a summer job. They get a summer job in a resort area where they're, they're a fry cook at, you know, a clam shack somewhere down on Cape Cod. So they get the taste of it because in my mind, it makes no sense to spend the amount of money you're going to spend to become a chef and walk out in the industry cold and stand there and go, what the heck did I just do? What is this all about? What are you talking about Saturday nights? What are you talking about, you know, no Christmas Eve with my family, you know, and that type of thing. So I, I always strongly encourage them to work, always. When we were going to school, when I was going to school back in the 70s, in order for us to graduate, we had to log in, I can't remember the exact amount, 500 hours of field experience. And that's where I actually, believe it or not, that's where I kind of met my 
my semi-mentor, Stanley Nickus, because he ran the Castle Restaurant up in Leicester. And that, as the crow flies from, from my home in Sutton, was only, you know, 15 or 20 miles. So I, I was his, his first apprentice from Johnson & Wales. Good. Now talk about um, certification and, and getting credentials in that area in the industry, not only experience, not only degrees, but can you speak to someone that may be listening, um, your thoughts on that? I, I did certifications. Um, I went the education route and, you know, got the bachelor's degree, the master's degree and, and that type of things. All of my certifications are in food safety. And I think that that's extremely important. Everybody has to, has to get that if you're going to stay in the, in the culinary industry. I never did, um, I never did go for the ACF certifications or any of those types of things. Um, my personal opinion, my personal opinion, I found it to be too political as far as, you know, it's who you know kind of a scenario. Um, education for me was a much, a much more fascinating track. Plus I was learning something. Um, and I do, I've got any food safety certification you can possibly imagine certified food safety professional being the highest. So I, I, I find it important to do that if that is something that you decide you want to pursue, but it gives, it gives the people who are involved with it, um, a sense of belonging to, to, to something a little bit bigger than themselves. Um, I know my friend Ray McHugh, he's always, he's a proponent for like ACF and, and all of these certifications. And, and, and I think that's great. I, I, I think it's great if it's something that you want to do. What about professional organizations? There's other ones besides that, that maybe someone can get involved sure. in. Sure. You know, um, Les Amis Descoffiers. I'm a member of Les Amis Descoffiers. I am the first female shareholder in Les Amis Descoffiers. Wow. Franz Lemoyne, how do you like me now? <laughs> <laughs> no such thing as what a woman chef. chef. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, that, Le Chandra Rodeur, a lot of these different hospitality groups, especially, I think it's extremely important that you get involved with your local hospitality association because that grouping right there gives you a lot of leverage to move into other areas, especially if you stay within your own community or your own state, however it happens to work. I know that the Rhode Island Hospitality Association is a very, very strong force here in Rhode Island as far as implementing new prestiges with um, opening restaurants and food safety and, and all of that. They've, they've partnered closely with the, the Department of Health. Um, in the governor's office and, and all of that. So I would say those types of things are extremely important as well. Mm -hmm. Now, now that you're retired, what is your next plans? I mean, I know you had a consulting company for a while. Do you still do that? Is that still going to be in the future? Are you taking time off? Are you going to take up golf? What <laughs> <laughs> well, you know something? I, I hope to keep calibrated kitchens going. I um, the The few clients that I worked with, have closed up shop so it's the trickle down effect unfortunately so i i'm hoping that when we start getting things rolling again because what i did is I, as i sell myself as an insurance policy i go in and i inspect their kitchens and i look for the same things that the department of health would look for and Having the experience as the food safety liaison, I know where everything is. You know, I know where to look. I'm going to hide it. I know where to look. So I go in and do the inspections and then I write it up and I send it to the food and beverage manager or the manager and the chief cook, executive chef, whoever it happens to be. But the, the executive chef both have to be on board and it's strictly confidential and it's only for them to get better so when the Department of Health comes in and inspects them, they don't get a bad review. I, I would like to keep that going, but I also, I love to write, which is 
unusual for a lot of people because they don't like to, but I, I love to write. I eventually would, would like to get involved with writing for a blog or maybe doing a couple of food safety pieces for food safety news or, or something like that. I, um, I actually entered the scholarship fair this past year on food safety, short stories and case studies. And I've, I've written several of them for the sanitation classes. And it's all based on observations, you know, things that you see every single day. A lot of people don't think about, they don't look at, you know, I, I, I would go in local restaurants, sit at the bar, have, have a drink and watch what takes place at the, uh, the station, you know, the hands in with the maraschino cherries and the olives and all of that. And I'd write a case study on it. Wow. So writing is writing is a possibility. Golf is not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, is food safety a viable career for someone coming out of culinary school? And if so, how would they go about that? How would you, if someone was interested in that, how would you guide them or tell them to, you know, pr pursue that? Food safety, I think, is going to be a very, very important component of our industry moving forward for a lot of reasons with this coronavirus and you know personal hygiene and training and, and all of that i think food safety is going to be huge and if anybody is interested in doing it i recommend that they contact or communicate with their local department of health and find out how to proceed um if they're looking for anybody, um, fill out an application, take a look at the website, see what it's all about, volunteer to tag along as an apprentice, um, do something like that if you're interested in that. Good, good advice. Now, you were told that uh, women cannot be chefs. Obviously, that's changed. Imagine that, yeah. <laughs> um, but what would you say to maybe a female today that wanted to get into it? Is it different? Is it all the same? Or was it something they should know um, getting into culinary school, into the industry, into food service, into hotels? How do I answer this? I have, I, I've never been part of this um, Me Too movement or any of that. Um, I like to consider myself the Me Too movement because I was working in a kitchen in a man's industry 35 years ago, more. And I would say to any gal who wanted to, to get into the industry, number one, hold your salt. You know, don't be intimidated. Um, I had no problem whatsoever if, you know, they talk about sexual harassment and all of this sort of stuff. And, and that at this point is, is a very touchy subject. But again, 70s, 80s, and when I was in, in the kitchens, I was a young woman. And I was, you know, I mean, I was cute. <laughs> I wasn't, you know, but I was, I was cute enough. And uh, the guys... I'd have no problem. They'd come over if, if someone came over and, and made a comment to me or something like that. I'd have no problem just like stabbing them. You know, <laughs> you can't do it now. And uh, and I'm not and I'm really I'm not kidding, to be honest with you, Colin. I remember um, I worked with this one guy and he would walk up behind me all the time and he'd pinch me on the back of the thigh. And I said to him, one more time. One more time. And he'd walk up behind me, pinch me on the back of the thigh. And I had a, a small little tiny paring knife. It was about an inch long. And I was carving vegetables for a crudite tray. And he walked up behind me and he pinched me in the thigh. And I went like that. And I got him right in the forearm. You know something? He never pinched me on the thigh again. No. <laughs> but any, young, any younger gal getting into the industry, you have to be prepared to to work as hard, if not harder, and work smarter, not harder, and prove yourself, you know, prove yourself. If you want to stay in the industry, prove yourself or open your own business. 
human resources doesn't put up with it like you know back in the 70s and 80s so today no. there's so many you know outlets just say something talk to somebody if there is that going on yes and, and it, you know something and that's not necessarily a bad thing of course you know because you know it, it's out there it's out there all over the place and uh you know to be very honest with you the only time i've ever seen a chef just kind of like drop off the face of the planet at Johnson and Wales is if it, if there were rumors that he was, you know, doing something that he shouldn't be doing with a female student. And then gone. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, what happened to him? <laughs> Haven't seen him in a while. <laughs> gone. You know, Don't play around. Nope. Not at all. So maybe you could talk a little bit more about or clarify for those that are in a dead end job, you talked about, you know, you got to grow, you got to keep moving, you got to, you know, keep it interesting. And, and maybe say that again, because that I think that's important to hear for all, all careers, you know, because life is short. If you find yourself traveling to work on any given day, and you're saying to yourself, God, I dread going in there. It's time to go and move on. If you find yourself saying, if I drive up and down Allen's Ave one more time and hit this same pothole again, I'm going to lose my mind. It's time to move on. And it was time for me to move on. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm only 64. Um, but it, it was time for me to move on. I didn't, I had been with the university again, 45 years. I have seen a lot of, you know, so much, you know, just so much growth and so many changes and so, you know, many people and deans and directors and mentors and, you know, um, then it just, it, it got to the point where I said, you know, something, I don't have another change in me. I really don't. This semester thing, this, you know, virtual thing. Um, my generation is so analog and these kids are so digital. I didn't, I didn't have it in me. And I said, you know something I have to, I have to move on. And that, that's kind of what prompted me in, into moving. And the, the timing was, was perfect from my perspective because I went out early March I told you because of the surgery and I just never went back and I had planned my, I had given um, my Dean and my department chair, my letter of retirement on my 64th birthday in January. And I said, well, that's appropriate. That'll take me till June, January, February, March, April, May, June. Eh, you know, one month for every decade I've been here. <laughs> What is uh, one common myth about the profession or culinary school, the industry, a kitchen that you want to debunk? It isn't true, but you hear it all the time. That the chefs are mean. <laughs> <laughs> Just that the chefs are mean. They're not. You know, they're they're not. Um, some of the some of the the kids think that you know, oh, we heard you were so mean. I'm not mean. I'm like the sweetest person you ever wanted to meet. You know, Chef so-and-so isn't, isn't mean. It's, you have to be disciplined. That's the thing that, that the, the students don't like the discipline. Yeah, it has nothing to do with mean. Just here's the. Have to be disciplined. Here's the agenda. Here's the rules. Here's the process. Nothing to do with mean, but <laughs> tomato, tomato, you know, <laughs> discipline mean. Well, as we come to the end of our chat today, before we wrap up, is there any last minute advice or guidance that you want to leave with the listeners, something you want to share? I would say start collecting worthwhile books. Um, I have a stack of them I, I brought with me. One of my favorites is the Food Lover's Companion, the New Food Lover's Companion, the Chef's Companion. I would take a look at the classics, um, LaRousse, uh, uh, Escoffier, um, 
I would make it a point to find a mentor and and latch on to that person and suck up as much knowledge as you possibly can. I would also say that it's important to to keep your family involved with what you're doing. And if you like to travel, travel and don't don't get in a job where you don't have a lot of options available to you. You know, a lot of the kids like to come out and take the first thing they want to do is I'm going to I'm going to go and take an executive chef's job. Okay, but you know, do you know how to do all the other stations first? So get experience, family, of course, and start start your collection. You know, start your collection. And you mentioned mentorship and how important it is, and something I agree with. But how does someone go about getting someone? Someone may be listening to this and saying, "Yeah, I get a mentor." How do I do that? How, how would you advise them to find a mentor, approach a mentor, or you know, maybe make that connection? You know, something I think it's it's a relationship that just kind of develops. Students will, um, let's say, latch on to someone like Chef Terranova, and they, it, 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 it's just, it's like this, this perfect um, guiding force, I guess, that you, you automatically know, you know that there's a connection and you find yourself talking with that person and what are you, what are you doing and why are you doing that and asking questions. And then if you're getting responses you can develop the professional relationship from there. But if you're like, get up, you know, go away and leave me alone. That person probably isn't for you. Um, one of the things that the university did at one point was assign a faculty mentor to a group of individual students. I, I didn't, um, I never agreed with that theory because a mentor mentee relationship is so so personal that you'll find whoever it is and you'll be with that person for life. I mean, whoever thought, whoever thought that a Hungarian Jew who survived Auschwitz and a 23 year old redheaded girl from Sutton, Massachusetts would spend 38 years together. Couldn't make it up. Nope. Yeah, that's good. And I think the schools do it because they just want to give them a starting point. Get them a, get them a starting point. But if, if that isn't a good fit and they have assigned it, pick another one. Find yep. another faculty member because, you know, educators, teachers, we're helpers by nature. So yep. just go up and be a sponge, grab, ask them questions. And if there's a connection, as you mentioned, you know, pursue that and it can turn into hopefully a lifetime like you had with yours. Right, Exactly. Good. Uh, is there any last minute question that I should have asked that I didn't? Or is there anything else you want to share or anything that uh, we didn't we didn't already touch upon? I think we covered a lot. But, you know, I just hope that the people who see this um, get a little background uh, of my history and my experience. Because as I mentioned to you when we first started our conversation, they, they see me teaching menu planning and cost control. But they don't know that there's 40 plus years behind me that's been a long road to home um, that's made Chef Linda Kenda what Linda Kenda is today. Yeah, so true. As I mentioned, I teach cost control and they call me chef and they go, why do we call you chef? You teach math. And I'm like, you don't know where I, my story, right. where I was. This is just where story. I'm now. And I was definitely a chef certified executive, you know, if they could see the bio and stuff, but they automatically just, you know, they're just young and they just see you and they think, well, you're, you're a professor. Why, why are you wearing a chef coat? It's like, well, it's a long right. story. <laughs> it's a long story. <laughs> and I'm just glad I'm here where I'm at now. Me, me too. Well, that is just about all the time we have for this ep episode. And I want to first thank you, Linda, for coming on the show today and sharing your culinary school story with all of us and the advice and the honesty and everything that you shared. I think it was so beneficial. And again, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Colin. It's been my pleasure. All right. Well, enjoyed our chat. Take care and bye-bye. Excellent. Thank you, Colin.
My pleasure. Bye-bye. And a big thanks and appreciation also goes out to all of you, the listeners. We hope you enjoy the show and this episode. You all are a big part of this show, so please let us know what you think. Your comments are always welcome, and they help us in making the best show possible. You can email them to culinaryschoolstories at gmail.com. That's culinaryschoolstories at gmail.com. Or even leave us a voicemail at area code 207-835-1275. That's area code 207-835-1275. And if you like the show, we have a big ask of all of you. And that is to share the podcast with everyone you know. And to give us a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Okay, until our next culinary school story, take care and be well. Bye-bye. Culinary School Stories is a proud member of the Food Media Network.